weekday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And that's a look at the schedule here on C-SPAN. This is Book Notes, C-SPAN's 60-minute discussion with the authors of public policy, historical, and political works. For the next hour, you'll see behind the titles and gain insight into the authors as people and the experiences which shape their lives. This week, our guest is Lewis Lapham, editor of Harper's Magazine. He joins us to discuss his recent book, The Wish for Kings, Democracy at Bay. Louis H. Lapham, author of The Wish for Kings, Democracy at Bay. You have a chapter called Versailles on the Potomac. What's it about? It's about the splendor of Washington that has been uh, the magnificence of its marble, of its pretensions, of its uh, bureaucratic vastness, so that it has become like a palace at Versailles. I mean, and it is a court society, a world unto itself, sometimes called inside the beltway. And it's grown and multiplied since the end of the Second World War, so that the expense of, of government, the number of uh, uh, functionaries, of people who serve government in its, in its many facets. I mean, I think there's something like now 100,000 lawyers and lobbyists that work on various degrees of regulation and the Congress, the staff of the Congress is multiplied to 35,000 and it's it's this sense of a vast uh, Versailles-like court, a hall of mirrors in which um, the various servants of government uh, flatter one another or blame one another, strike poses, issue bills, make announcements, uh, stage pageants of one kind or another. That, that's the view of it in that chapter. You have a story in here about Robert Mossbacher, the former Secretary of Commerce. I do. When Mossbacher first uh, came to, he was appointed by Bush and he, he came from Houston. And he thought that a man of his stature and uh, magnificence uh, should have had more notice by the media, more time on television, more space in the Washington Post and so on. And so he was constantly seeking uh, means of his own self-aggrandizement. And he hit upon having a private entrance made for himself at the Department of Commerce on the other side of the building from the, com from the entrance in which the, the mere populace was to come and go. And he, and he had the entrance built at great expense with a long awning sort of like a canopy in front of a nightclub or a, a restaurant. And I think he wanted to have it red because Jim Baker's canopy at the State Department was blue, or he wanted it blue because Jim Baker's canopy was red. I can't remember which way it went. But there were only six people allowed to use that entrance. There was Mossbacker himself, his wife, um, his secretary, his deputy, his lawyer, for all I know, his valet. And then, after he'd gotten that all together, it still wasn't quite grand enough. He practiced walking in and out of the, uh, that entrance for a number of weeks, and then he decided that still, the dist once he got inside the building, there was a distance to go to his own private elevator. But between the entrance and the elevator, there were offices. 
sort of cubicles in which uh, the uh, uh, poor people worked. Work, shirt sleeves, I mean, it was an unseemly uh, uh, display of uh, manual labor. So he had the entire inside of the, uh, the Department of Commerce, that part of it anyway, uh, reconstructed. The offices were removed so that there was a properly open grand space between the entrance and the elevator. And I, I believe that there was a table put there with a simply a decoration of flowers. But it's that kind of uh, uh, attitude that too often uh, captures people. I mean, not only, of course, in Washington, but elsewhere in the, in, within any organization large enough to sustain its own theory of reality. Nancy Reagan, the color red and a bed? She used to have her own bed uh, or a replica. When she traveled with the president, uh, she would have a, her own bed or one exactly like it carried uh, a few days before she was going to arrive in some foreign capital. And she also was in, as you probably well remember, she, the, the color red was a, a passion of hers. So that the rooms in which she was to stay, whether she was going to a palace in Venice or a castle in France or a hotel in Hawaii, the rooms the room was painted uh, red prior to her arrival. And her bed was placed, the room was painted. And then the mirrors were all dropped because Nancy Reagan was, was fairly short. And uh, sometimes the mirrors had to be brought down to a level that didn't... So she saw more than the top of her head, which would otherwise uh, put her in bad mood for the afternoon. Jack Kent Cook, who owns the Washington Redskins, you quote him as saying, I'm a Republican, but strangely, I have a great many Democratic friends. Dodd, Brzezinski, Greenspan, he's of indeterminate lineage. Sam Donaldson, what's he? Gene McCarthy and George McGovern, what's the point here? The point is that Jack Kent Cook is the owner of the Washington Redskins and that one of the most uh, valued places at, at court in Washington is in Jack Kent Cook's box at the JFK, uh, RFK Stadium. And it's a large box. I believe there are 50 or 60 places in it. And of course, during the uh, long period of the Republican administration, the box was filled with uh, important Republicans. And shortly after the election of Clinton, I believe within two days, suddenly it turned out uh, Cook discovered all of his Democratic friends, and the, their seats were changed. And with a new administration, the court brings in new courtiers. And Cook was very quick to to see that. It, it's it's the constant game in, in Washington, as you know far better than I, of who's in, who's out. I mean, who who will come, who will go, who will get to write the senator's speeches or carry the general's shirt or, or sit in Jack Kent Cook's box or have a parking space at the national airport. I mean, these are questions of vast weight. You also quote Mr. Cook as saying, the box is not used to ingratiate myself with the administration. Please quote me, this is the New York Times actual quote, please quote me precise on that. I invite people who are good company, happy, cheerful, good-humored people who love football. It's a great statement. I'm, I'm, it's worthy of a, of a politician, but I mean, it's 
I'm sure you can always, people who are in Jack Kent Cook's box are apt to be happy and cheerful and loving football almost uh, of necessity. I mean, that, that would be whether they're Democrats or Republicans. You write about the World Bank and first class versus business class travel. What's the World Bank, by the way? The World Bank is uh, a large uh, lending institution which arranges loans, usually for underdeveloped countries, loans for economic assistance. And it takes, uh, most of the funds come from the United States and the headquarters of the World Bank are here in Washington, but it, it does assemble funds from other countries in the world. And so its mission is to the, the poorer, uh, more hard-pressed uh, countries of the earth. But it, it sustains a, a fairly sizable bureaucracy of its own, very uh, comfortable one, very highly paid people. And one of these people on one of his jaunts to some desolate heath in Africa, had figured out that if he traveled business class instead of first class, he would save a great deal of money. And he then worked out the equation that if this practice was uh, adopted by other members of the hierarchy of the World Bank, they, they would save $12 million a year. And this is not too great a um, decline in accommodation. I mean, we we're simply going from first class to business class and saving $12 million. But when this memorandum was passed around within the corridors at the World Bank, it, it uh, evoked feelings of uh, horror, disbelief, dismay. And uh, one of the vice presidents uh, uh, sent back a counter memo saying, if, if, I can't remember the exact words, but it was to the effect that uh, this couldn't, you know, this sort of suggestion was, uh, outrageous and that uh, if Mr. Whoever it was didn't have more concern for the comfort of his colleagues he should be dismissed at once and, and return, you know sent to some dark place of exile but it was the the feeling of how can they take this away from me. You have a story in here about Bob Gray who is he and what's his relationship to you? Bob Gray was a man I um, began to, when I, I first began, I first came to Washington in the late 1950s during the Eisenhower administration. I'd come from university and I was trying to decide what kind of career to, to follow. What school? I'd gone to Yale University and then in the United States, then I'd gone to Cambridge University in England. And the, so I came and I talked as a very young man. I, I approached the CIA, I approached uh, the Washington Post, and I also approached the uh, White House. And I was sent to talk to Mr. Gray. Gray, at, at this point in time, eventually became an, an enormously successful uh, lobbyist and uh, trafficker in influence and, and patronage. And now, as I believe, uh, he had his own uh, lobbying firm for many years and is now with Hill and Knowlton. Uh, but then he was a young man and he was a, an aide to Eisenhower. And I can remember being interviewed by him. Uh, he had very little time. He was, he was hard pressed and we, the interview took place in the basement of the White House 
in the in the barber shop. I mean, there was a barber chair down there in those days, and the only other place for me to sit was on the toilet. I sat on the toilet, and Gray sat in the in the barber chair, and I saw I was at the level of his shoes, which I remember being very beautiful shoes. And he, I started to talk about democratic theory. I was very young, very idealistic, and Gray waved that all off and sort of said, to, "Don't, please don't waste anybody's time." He said the whole thing about uh, government, about Washington, or about power is 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 simply to acquire the right sort of friends and uh, make connections and do what you're told until the great day comes when you can tell others what to do. Carry whatever water must be carried, and, and so on. It was a very realistic assessment and uh, a very uh, clear uh, statement of, of the principle, which I never forgot. I mean, he made it very uh, articulately. What happened to Bob Gray after 1957? He became, after I, he then went into his own, set up his own firm and became uh, very influential in a, in, in a number of, as a lobbyist, as a man who makes introductions, who arranges things, who helps legislation um, more easily through the channels of the Congress and so on. Lobbyist, I believe, is the term. What happened to you? What happened to me? I, I went into the newspaper business. I became a newspaper reporter first for the San Francisco Examiner and then for the um, New York Herald Tribune. And then I became a magazine writer in the most of the 60s for the Saturday Evening Post and for Life magazine. And then what? Then I became um, a writer for Harper's Magazine in about 1970, and then in 1971 I became, by default, uh, a managing editor because there was a, uh, the, a one of those office politics things that happens in New York Magazine offices fairly frequently. So the then editor resigned, so did some of the other editors. I didn't agree with their unhappiness. So I stayed and I became, on, on a Monday I was a writer and on a Tuesday I became a, a managing editor. And I remained, I, w I was the managing editor for four years and then I became the editor in 1976. How long did you stay there? Well, I was the editor for about, uh, Let's see, from 1976 to 1981. Then I was fired and uh, spent two years in exile uh, and rehired in 1980. Yeah, 1983. I was then the glorious return. I was I was recalled as the editor of the magazine. So I've been the editor twice: once 1976, 81, and again from 83 until now. You dedicate this book to John R. MacArthur, who is wary of merchants, let alone kings. Who is John R. MacArthur? John R. MacArthur is the publisher of Harper's Magazine and uh, is a uh, related to the large uh, MacArthur family, well-known uh, family in Chicago. And he became associated with Harper's Magazine very early when it in 1980 became interested in the uh, in the magazine and it's a long story but it, 
When the magazine went bankrupt in 1980, it was through his influence that the magazine was rescued, first by the John R. MacArthur Foundation, and then, in turn, by the Harper's Magazine Foundation. And he is, um, first of all, a journalist, and has himself uh, written a good book called The Second Front, which he published last year, which is a book about the press coverage of, of the uh, Gulf War. And then he's also the publisher of the magazine. But he's a very, uh, very good person for me to work for because he encourages uh, freedom of expression. I mean, he's not nervous about offending the powers that be. Where's the MacArthur money come from originally? It originally comes from uh, John R. MacArthur's grandfather, um, who was um, a man who made a great fortune in the real estate and in insurance businesses and began uh, to acquire his fortune in the, in the Depression in the early 1930s. In the middle of that period when you were without a job, yeah. you had a dinner with, that you were invited to that Giscard d'Estaing, the former yes. president of France, to tell that story. Well, I was, again, this is, I'm trying to explain that the courtier spirit, the attitude of um, bowing and scraping that takes place in various uh, large American institutions is true of, certainly in Washington, but it, it's also true of, of quite a few business corporations. It's true within the media. It's true in the universities. Define the word courtier. Courtier is one who uh, says to a succession of masters, make of me what you want. I am what you want me to be. In other words, uh, it's an, a toady, a uh, dependent, somebody willing to do whatever is asked by his or her boss and uh, lives by making a constantly gracious impression. It's a uh, yes man would be another way of, uh, that would be another phrase for it. Anyway, the, in uh, 1981, I was the editor of the magazine and I had been um, asked to a very small dinner for at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York for Giscard d'Estaing. And um, I was invited, I believe, on the 1st of August, and then I was fired on the 15th of August. And uh, the dinner was on the 15th of September, and a few days before the dinner, I, the council called me up and wanted to know what title should go after my name on that little piece of paper that's distributed to everybody at the dinner. And I, of course, by that time, had none. And there's this long and ghastly silence, and I, I, met, I finally managed to resolve it by saying that I wrote an occasional article for the Washington Post, and so they were... I didn't have any permanent employment with the Post, but it was enough to get on the piece of paper. Would they have invited you if, <coughs> if you didn't have a job? It wouldn't have been... Uh, Probably not, no. I mean, the again, the notion of the court, the notion of titles, the notion of uh, one is known by one's institutional affiliation. Uh, the plain democratic name, it, it has to have the of 
Mobile Oil Corporation, of the New York Times, of C-SPAN, of Harper's Magazine, of whatever. I mean, it's the... We as Americans like to pride ourselves uh, uh, as individualists constantly, and one of the images of ourselves that we like the best is that of the Clint Eastwood figure, or the man against the system, the um, cowboy fearing west in the rain. But we, in fact, are people that are very much dependent upon our institutional identities and identifications. I am of the bank, I am of the paper, I am of the studio, whatever. And this, of course, is one of the premises or theses of the book, which is as the uh, courtier spirit, which is the accommodating spirit, the democratic spirit is the one that, that simply speaks out and says whatever it's in its mind. Uh, and candor is one of the great democratic political virtues. The, we're Democrats to the extent that we try to tell each other what we know, what we've seen, what we feel. We're courtiers to the extent that we tell each other what we each of us want to hear. And so that, that the book is, is saying that as more and more people in this country become more and more dependent on large institutions, whereas in the last part of the 19th century, most Americans were self-employed, something like 80% of the population, many of them farmers, obviously, but farmers and small uh, craftsmen and businessmen. As the, in the 20th century, as the large institutional organizations um, come forward, now I think only 2% of the American people are are self-employed. And if you, if one depends on um, an, inst an institution for, for one's whole existence, I mean, not only medical insurance, but also clothes allowance, also pension, also place in the world, also business card and so forth, then the independent habit of mind tends to give way to the more accommodating habit of mind. That's the, one of the arguments. Note six in the back of the book, the story of Kissinger's life is the story of the perfect courtier. Kissinger was a man who knew how to play the court world uh, extremely well. I mean, the, the, he began as a, um, he was discovered by Nelson Rockefeller when he'd been a, Kissinger started as an academic, he was at Harvard, a history professor, I believe. And then somehow he managed to get to Nelson Rockefeller, and, and he provided Nelson Rockefeller with whatever theories. Nelson Rockefeller was then governor of New York and had presidential ambitions. And he provided him with uh, theories of the Cold War, theories of nuclear disarmament, theories of nuclear exchange, I forget in what succession they, they came. But, but uh, Kissinger, again, was a man always willing to um, arrange the world to fit the desire of, of his patron, uh, whether it was Rockefeller or Nixon or sometimes uh, important senior columnists in the media. 
I mean, he understood that it was that the world of it was a world of poses of uh, the right word at the right time. Whether the theory actually was true or not, uh, whether it had any relation to the facts or not, was less important than the way it advanced or failed to advance Kissinger's career. It's a little bit off the subject, but it's in your book, and it's note number 12. You talk about an advertising executive who had to give an enema to a client, client yeah. once a month, once a week. What in the world is that story? That story is, I'm saying that as the, well, it's a story about, uh, um, trying to put it delicately. Is this new information, by the way, in this book? <laughs> no. Uh, no, is this, not, is this, your, is this first time it's been published, this little story? Yeah. I mean, it's it, a, you found this out. A fellow explained this to me, yeah. Well, tell the whole story, if you don't mind. Well, it's a story, I mean, the, the magazine business, again, as um, um, people become more independent on their patrons, more willing to do what is ever necessary to do to get the vote or to get the part or to get the account. Uh, people who are in the position of granting those requests begin to have more and more refined uh, desires and appetites. I mean, it's a variation on the old story about the Hollywood producer who insists that the young aspiring actress go to bed with him before she can get the part. In this instance, it's a story of a ad salesman who is uh, dependent on a client for a very large account, a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year in business for the, the magazines in question. And the client had a um, weird sexual um, um, request which required the advertising fellow to show up I think once every two months in a motel in, uh, somewhere in New Jersey and, and administer an enema to the gentleman. So, And by the way, you say he had to wear a seersucker suit, a bow tie, either yellow or pink? Yeah, he had, there, were, there were certain uh, sartorial requirements. But it's an example of the, uh, it happens to be a fairly uh, unhappy example or dismal example, but it, there are many, many examples like that. Uh, throughout the society, people that are in power, that have power over um, their uh, dependence. This essentially was the argument of, between Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. It wasn't a, it was the argument about what does the uh, individual in authority, what can he insist upon uh, on the part of his subordinates. You have a letter in here. I'll read just a little bit of it. Dear Mr. President, herewith the first run off the press of a book called The Making of the President, 1968, whose hero is Richard M. Nixon. Later on, you say, this gentleman says, the campaign that this book tries to describe was the campaign of a man of courage and of conscience and the respect it wrung from me, which I hope is evident, surprised me week by week as I went along. Later this man writes, there's no, there's so much difference between being a reporter and being a citizen, and his last line, and this president can also call on me as a friend. Sincerely, Teddy White. Right. Why did you put that in this book? 
I put that in because it, I'm trying to show the relation of the, um, the media, the, the press, to power, which is, again, the relation of the courtier trying to uh, curry favor among the people uh, whom it, it describes, to stay friends. I mean, in that particular book, uh, White had some rather sharp things to say about Nixon, but the, he, he wanted to maintain his um, place at court. I, I, I believe this is true. I don't know if this is in the book, but I've been told, and I, and I, I think it's true, is that, that Kay Graham in the Washington Post shortly after Nixon was impeached, I mean, the same month, sent him a nice note and said, don't worry, when it's all over, we'll, we'll have dinner. I mean, it, it's, um, it's that relation. The relation is always to power. And if you're out of power, nobody can remember your name. And if you're in power, Everybody's your best friend. The, the, the case of Nixon's career is, is a brilliant uh, demonstration of that. I mean, a man who was considered a used car salesman, impeached, and now he's... 20 years ago, his name was synonymous with uh, scoundrel crook, and now his name is synonymous with statesman and uh, philosopher. Uh, the last line of uh, the jacket on your book says the several facets of this question come into brilliant focus in this important book by one of our most incisive social critics. No one who cares about the future of our nation should miss reading The Wish for Kings. That they're writing about you. And the only reason I bring that up is that you then have a note in here that says, the talent for self-promotion is by no means unique to Washington. In New York, it is common practice for authors to write the jacket copy for their own books. That's true. Did you write the jacket copy for your own book? I don't think so. I, I certainly edited it. I mean, what happens is that the, uh, the uh, publisher writes it, and then they submit it to the, to the author. And um, so I'm sure I had a hand in that. Did you worry about the fact that you had had a hand in that and then used this footnote? Because you're, right, you're critical of a guy by the name of Gordon Lish who uh, wrote the following about himself. There was no other contemporary figure in the nation's literary community whose presence is as widely or as urgently felt. I don't think. I think it's a question of degree. I mean, it's a question. I, I thought the Lish was a little over the top. I thought the, uh, the words that the publisher used on my own behalf were fairly cliched and familiar. What about this book? Um, it's published by... Um... Grove, uh, Harper's, Gro by Grove Press. Is that owned by Harper's? No, it's owned by the Atlantic Monthly. It's owned, it, it, there's something called the Atlantic Monthly Press, which, and then there was something called Grove Press, and just about the same time that this book uh, was published last, this spring, Harper's, I mean, sorry, Atlantic Monthly Press acquired Grove Press, so now they're a joint uh, publishing company. Why did you want to write this book? I wanted to write the book because I was trying to describe uh, what I saw, not only in, I was trying to re report accurately um, the circumstance of the uh, what I kept encountering I mean and again it's not only about government it's about universities it's about um, 
corporations, about the media, and and I don't exempt myself from the uh, conditions that I describe, but people constantly go around and say, uh, the American democracy is in trouble, or the United States is in decline, and so forth. And it seems to me that if there's any, that may be true, but one of the reasons that true is true is there is an absence of, of Democrats, small d. I mean, something is evolving in this country and has been over the last 20 years um, away from the notion of, of democratic self-government and even more to the point uh, a loss of faith in the democratic idea I mean freedom is good but it's not enough um, self-government would be wonderful if we had the time and the energy and the resources to uh, practice it. But in the meantime, give us somebody who will take care of us. Um, that's the wish for kings. The, the wish for kings is a very old wish. It's the, it's the wish that brings in Caesar. It's the wish that brings in the man on the white horse, the magical figure that will uh, resolve uh, all one's troubles. And it is antithetical to the uh, democratic notion of discovering one's own future. You write, I have come across only a small number of people who can talk about any particular book at convincing length. That is true in, 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 in New York. Uh, New York is, uh, that's a remark I believe about the New York literary um, world, where the conversation is much more apt to be about um, the author's standing in the market. I mean, everybody has read the reviews, and everybody knows whether the book is up or down or in or out. Uh, and everybody has something to say about it in a, in a couple of sentences. But I find, at least within the court world of the New York literary scene, that relatively few people have had the time to read all the way through the uh, through the book. I, I find that when I travel around the country that if I'm in California or if I'm in Ohio or Texas and I run across somebody who's read the book, they're apt to have read the whole thing and, and are prepared to really talk about it. Whereas in New York I get the the current opinion. You had a book show on television. I did. What was the name of it? It was called Bookmark, and it appeared, it was on public broadcasting, and it was on for three years, 1989, 90, 91, I believe. What was the format? Very similar to this one, except uh, it went for half an hour. We'd take a book, just, just the way we're doing now, and I would play your part, and you would play mine, and then often I would have one or two other people in the conversation, usually writers, who had thought about or had written about the subject under, of the, who, who could add to the conversation and uh, either argue with the writer or provide a different perspective. And the, the object was to try to get a conversation about ideas going in, in a half an hour. 
if you still had the show and, and you were playing my role and you had somebody else sitting at the table for this book, what kind of person would you invite? Well, you'd have to... I might ask somebody like um, Hedrick Smith. Hedrick Smith wrote a book <clears throat> called The Power Game. And in public, very... Uh, interesting book came out I think four years ago and he well-known figure in Washington this would be certainly from the Washington side this would be a very familiar topic to him and he would agree with some of it and argue with some of it but again he's very good on television I mean he would have been a, a an interesting presence I what, think. what happened to the show um, the show lost its funding. I mean, it was supported by the Bell Atlantic Telephone Company, and they supported it, that company for three years, and then um, the people who had been responsible for that within Bell Atlantic went to other companies. The new people in the Bell Atlantic had no interest in it, and. I, I couldn't raise uh, money for it. I, I tried. It was it, At that point, was running in 147 stations. Um, it was beginning to evolve. It was beginning to acquire an audience. And uh, But I, I went to various corporations. I went to some foundations, but I never could, I never could um, find the, uh, the money to, to put it back on. What do you think of public television? And how does that fit in the, your, you know, because I know you write some about it in The Wish for Kings. Yeah. I think public television, ten, in my experience of it, was very much part of the, the court world. In other words, um, they had certain people I came up against had certain set attitudes. I mean, I brought the book show uh, first to the station in Washington, and um, I was simply told that we here at the station, we're not interested in books. Uh, we never want to hear more than uh, three minutes a day of a book review on uh, NPR, and we appreciate your uh, concern, but no. And this was even with the funding presented to them. I mean, I went to that meeting with the people from Bell Atlantic. And then we encountered the same thing when we tried to put the show on through Philadelphia. And New York uh, was willing to take the show, but only if we kind of dressed it up with production values. So I encountered uh, uh, hostility to, um, to books, to ideas on, on the part of PBS. I mean, this kind of show would be considered... Uh, talking heads and uh, therefore not interested, not good for ratings, not show business. And I encountered that attitude uh, almost wherever I went within PBS. I think they're wrong because I happen to like talking heads and the, um, I think they're interesting. But And I also think that the public broadcasting system should try to do more of this kind of thing because as you know there are a lot of interesting people in the country and and uh, they have a lot of interesting things to say and they don't not enough of them appear um, 
either on, um, certainly not on the networks, and, and not enough on the, the public broadcasting system. I've underlined a couple of other <clears throat> comments you're making here about some individuals. I just want to read them and get your reaction as to why you said that. The Television and Publishing Media Award, uh, I'm reading this wrong, the Television and Publishing Media Award Alan Dershowitz the reputation of an incomparable trial lawyer in homage to his talent for publicity rather than in recognition of his record in appeals cases, which as of the summer of 1992 stood at nine wins and 39 losses. Uh, yes, the, the tendency again is to go for the reputation. Dershowitz is a great self-promoter. Um, he has won some spectacular cases, but he has lost uh, more than he has won. But people like, uh, I believe, uh, Leona Helmsley and then uh, Mike Tyson both were persuaded by his reputation. And uh, both of them went more or less directly to jail, as I remember. I mean, he didn't uh, triumph in there cases. But again, the media image, the reputation often is a surrogate for the work itself. I mean, again, take Kissinger and take Nixon. Both of them uh, have still reputations as prescient statesmen, people who were clear-eyed and and saw the, the shape of the world. And yet, if you look back on their, their record, it's like Dershowitz's record. I mean, they were wrong on Vietnam. They didn't understand the oil crisis of the early 70s. They certainly didn't understand Iran or the Shah. They didn't foresee uh, the change in Russia. Neither of them ever understood the economy. They didn't understand what it would mean to go off uh, to change the uh, gold standard in the early 70s. So that the, the, the record is, is based on, uh, to a large extent, on, on image and very little on, on substance. Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, but the media chatter incessantly about the people for whom the society has the least use, about Elizabeth Taylor's wedding or Jay Leno's contract or Maria Shriver's hair, and they, uh, let me turn the page, and they take little notice of people or professions on whom the society utterly depends. How come? The uh, former figures, the celebrity figures, tend to be more... Um, fun. I mean, they're, you know, they can be brilliantly illuminated. They're, they provide gossip. They're decorative. I mean, the, to keep celebrities in a way is like keeping pets. I mean, they're, they're expensive, <laughs> but they, they, they relieve people of their own, um, grief or their own concerns they can it's, it's like a great puppet show that takes place or it's like a pageant at court to get back to that image it's like a masked ball and these people are uh, more fun to talk about and 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 the again with the wonders of the modern technology with it with the television 
people throughout the country identify with them. I mean, the, the uh, stars of afternoon television soap opera shows receive 100,000 letters a week from fans uh, telling them things that the correspondents would never tell their fathers, wives, husbands, you know, I mean, confessional. You, uh, you write about a dinner party, you were in attendance, um, and you're sitting next to a lady, and you're talking about democracy. Um, before I ask you about that, let me read this statement you write. Over the course of the last 20 years, and across the span of an extensive acquaintance among the people who enjoy most of the country's advantages, bond salesmen and politicians, as well as publishers, corporate vice presidents, novelists, lawyers, English professors, and undersecretaries of state, I have noticed that most of the respondents fear and despise both the theory and the practice of democracy. I think that's true. I'm talking about, it's the thing I said earlier when I said that if, if you asked me why did I write this book, um, the answer is that I've encountered if you ask me what is the trouble with the, with the American democracy, I will say to you the absence of Democrats in small d. They despise it, though. I think they fear it. Maybe in certain people despise it. I mean, they the the attitude of the uh, um, the, the the despising takes takes the form of uh, uh, the superior judgment and taste. Let's say of either. New York or Washington. We happy few, we here in New York understand it. But they on the other side of the Allegheny Mountains won't understand it. Um, or we happy few here in Washington know what is meant by, but they won't know what is meant by. The sen the, sorry. What about that lady? I mean, that, the lady at the party kind of uh, dovetails with what you just said. Yes, I, I'm not sure which lady... She's the one that um, I found myself wondering how it is possible to preserve the democratic spirit in a society distinguished by the absence of Democrats. At a dinner in Washington in February, I was seated next to a woman who thought the democracy was supposed to be easy, quiet, orderly, peaceful, and safe. Right. That's true. Uh, by the way, you didn't name some of these people. They're going to know who they are when they read this. I, I would think so. You're going to be invited back to these dinners, you think? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. The... Uh, but again, that woman's sort of thought in terms of democracy as, as a Fourth of July parade, not as a, a ceaseless argument. And again, the attitude toward, please, no confrontation. Democracy is about confrontation. It's about you and I disagreeing with each other. It's about, uh, it's not easy. It's not orderly. It's not especially safe. And the language of the court, the language of people who despise the vulgarity of too uh, sharp an opinion or too uh, garish uh, a taste, say, um, don't want to argue. Uh, you know, this woman, you know, was amazed to discover that uh, that individual property rights could sometimes actually be in conflict with community rights. I mean, this came to her as a great uh, news. And when I say despise, and when I say uh, few Democrats, then you have to look at 
the instinct all over the country to sort of withdraw into enclaves. Take the city of Los Angeles, where you have the people in Bel Air or in Pasadena or in Beverly Hills living behind um, safe perimeters, behind walls, behind uh, their own police forces, just trying to divorce and distance themselves from um, the proletarians wandering in the streets. Now that's happening all across the country. The whole advertising business is based on the point of making class distinctions. In the time remaining, I think one of the things is you dish it out to just about everybody in here uh, on both sides, and I want to make sure I get the balance. Uh, you say Bill Clinton cast himself as a friend of the American victim. The promises he made in the name of a custodial state could easily have been confused with a program of diet and exercise for a generation of lost children. An abbreviated list of his promises reads as follows, and you go through all of his promises. And earlier you said the philosophers of the liberal left, several of whom composed Governor Clinton's thesis of economic deliverance, believe that although money is wicked in the hands of mere individuals, it regains its blessedness in the hands of the state. Yes. That's the both believe, both left and right believe that money is uh, wonderful if only properly used. I mean, the, uh, the conservative is apt to think that uh, it's best left to the individual with no government uh, regulation or rules and the the statist the person who says uh, the government knows best and therefore if we spend the money on behalf of others it's 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 a different uh, uh, use but it's in in either instance money is uh, blessed only in the hands of those in the, in the hands of the right people, however they happen to be defined. Is there any way to define your own politics at this stage in your life? After reading this book, um, did you conclude anything? I conclude that... I mean, writing this book, excuse me. Well, I conclude that I, I, I want to get on, I want to try to learn how to uh, describe the circumstances of the American democracy at this point in time in, in a language that's more accurate than the one we've been using. I mean, one of our difficulties in this country is we don't have a vocabulary yet uh, in which we can accurately uh, tell each other what we want. I mean, how do you solve? What are the words to solve, let's say, the health care crisis? There is no solution until we can come to a prior agreement as to what we expect. I mean, otherwise, the desire for immortality, I mean, we now spend $600 billion a year or 7% of our GNP, and that will just continue. I mean, we will bankrupt ourselves and let, because we will, the desire to stay immortal, I mean, how are you going to, how are we going to control that, um, desire, that urge, unless we come to some prior uh, agreement as to what we're about. Are you a liberal or a conservative? Well, I would say I was culturally a conservative, but I tend to be politically a liberal. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have elements of both in them. Do you have a favorite president? You mean other than Lincoln and Jefferson? <laughs> okay. They would be my, they're the ones I, I probably know. The what do you think about. of the Kennedy legacy? I think it was, uh, again, it's part of the wish for kings. It's the, um, 
I think there was less there than we wish there would be. Lyndon Johnson. Johnson, to me, was a fascinating figure. I actually met Johnson. I worked in the White House uh, as a in the White House, um, you know, press corps during his briefly while he was president. And I've read quite a lot of books about Johnson, and and it's a. I don't have a simple answer. I mean, the elements are so mixed in Johnson that that I think he's, uh, in some ways, almost a tragic figure. Jimmy Carter. Carter, I think, is a much better as an ex-president than he is as a, as he was as a president. And I misread Carter at the time. I think I, the more I know about Carter, the more um, impressed I am with him. Ross Perot. Perot, I think, is an autocrat. I mean, I read him that way. I see him as a man who, if he could run the, he's very. Uh, uh, he knows what's wrong. But the way he wants to fix it to me is very unclear, and I, I get the uneasy feeling with Perot that if, if um, that he would like the country to be run either, you know, either as a prison or as a monastery. I mean, he would be the abbot or the warden, and I, I don't think he's a very, I don't think he has much sense of democratic uh, debate. Reagan taught the country that it wasn't necessary for a president to know anything about law or foreign policy or free speech or trees or black people or whales. Government was a salesman's smile and a gift for phrase. A I phrase. Think, I think that's true of Reagan. I think uh, Reagan was shrewder than many people uh, thought, but I also think he was primarily an actor. He was a man who read a script and... Um, what the words meant, uh, I often think uh, he didn't know, nor did he think it was important. Star Wars would be a wonderful example. I mean, he was on his way to a budget meeting. The first budget uh, conference, the summit, and the night before Jim Baker was on the Secretary of the Treasury, he had given him a briefing book. And uh, they get in the limousine to go to the summit the next day, and Baker says to, the, to Reagan, well, did you have a chance to read the briefing book? And Reagan looked at him in horror and said, but Jim, the sound of music was on last night. I mean, of course he didn't have time to read it. He, I don't think he had time. I don't think he had to be especially well informed on those uh, various heads. Where were you born? San Francisco. How long did you live there? I lived there uh, until I was about uh, uh, 13 years old. And then my parents moved to New York and I came to New York and went to school, uh, boarding school and then to college in Connecticut. What professions uh, were your parents about? Uh, my, father, my father had been in, first in the shipping business and then in the banking business. What impact did Cambridge have on you? Well, Cambridge showed me uh, the difference between an American university education and English university education. I also uh, formed in a... Uh, I learned to admire uh, C.S. Lewis, who was then at Cambridge, and E.M. Forster was then at Cambridge. And so I, I was... Um, 
allowed into the presence of um, men whom I thought uh, exemplary in many ways. Were you concerned when you wrote this book that you were stepping on a lot of toes and that you might not be welcome in some places that you used to go to? No, because I've... Uh, the people who've... Writing a column, a monthly column for Harper's Magazine for a number of years, I've, I've already stepped on quite a few toes so that I'm... I don't expect any new doors will be be closed. If there's, has there been any reaction, different reaction to this book, say, than that magazine? I mean, are people buying this book that don't normally buy Harper's? I think so. I think so. I'm beginning to get letters from people that I, that, who don't, aren't familiar with what I've written, and it's very encouraging. How's it selling? I think it's selling quite well. What's I, that mean to you? What, what, how many? The, you... All that means is that my publicist tells me that, or the publisher tells me that it's, it's doing well. And that I don't know what that means, but uh, presumably, and I also know that people go and ask for it in, in bookstores, and it's already been sold out, and they've had to order another 20 copies. What's the uh, circulation of Harper's? 210,000. Is it making money? No. Uh, Harper's last year had its best year in... Uh, since 1962, we only lost $67,000. How long are you going to keep it up? Well, I think we, it is, we could keep up that loss for quite a long time. How about you? How long are you going to stay the editor? As long as I can uh, get up in the morning and think that it's fun to go down to, the, go down to work. Next book? Next book is about Yale University. When? Uh, published the fall of 1995. Our guest has been Lewis Lapham. He's the editor of Harper's, and this is what the book looks like, The Wishes for Kings, Democracy at Bay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Next week on Book Notes, we'll discuss the political debates between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas. The series of seven debates, which began on August 21st, 1858, are chronicled by Civil War historian Harold Holzer in the recent book, The Lincoln-Douglas Debates. That's next Sunday on Book Notes at 8 and 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming next on C-SPAN, a look at politics in Great Britain. Transcript of this edition of Book Notes. Please send $5 to C SPAN Transcripts in care of Typewriter Incorporated, Post Office Box 885 in Lincolnshire, Illinois. The zip code is 60069. Members of the United States.